So I've gathered a few thoughts to share with you uh, for the next few minutes. And uh, these last three days, I've been talking about some practices that have been given to us by the Buddha in support of an ethical life. In the Buddhist tradition, a person who is devoted to the welfare of others is called a bodhisattva or an awakening being. And as I've been mentioning to those of you who've been joining uh, for the last few days, um, the guidance system for an awakening being is called, are called the 16 bodhisattva precepts. So among the 16 precepts, the first three are the refuges. I take refuge in Buddha and Dharma and Sangha. And the next three are called the pure precepts. And those are basically a summary of the whole, of the whole thing, of all 16. The pure precepts are do good, avoid evil or unwholesome conduct, and purify the mind. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning, beginning with a story about a Zen master by the name of Birdnest Roshi. So Birdnest Roshi, as he came to be called, was famous for sitting meditation high up in a tree. When a monk came to visit, he called up to the teacher and asked, what is the secret of Buddhist practice? The Roshi replied, do good, avoid evil, and purify the mind. The monk then said, well, that's easy. Even a three-year-old child can understand that. To which Birdnest replied, a child of three may understand it, but a person of 80 years may not be able to practice it. So many years ago, I took a number of Zen students with me on a field trip to the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. And as we entered into the beautiful collection of Chinese Buddhist art, I saw this wonderful trio of standing figures. Uh, in the center was Shakyamuni Buddha, and on one side of him, Ananda, known as the guardian of the Dharma. On the other side, Mahakashapa, known as the foremost in ascetic practices. And then later on, I was reflecting on these, stand, these standing figures, and I thought that together they very nicely represent the three pure precepts. So Mahakashapa, avoiding evil, you know, unwholesome conduct. Ananda, doing good. And Shakyamuni Buddha, purifying the mind. And then as a trio, saving all beings from suffering. So this first pure precept, avoiding evil, often connected to the idea of asceticism, basically refer refers to a wise and, a, and at times a severe restraint regarding the actions of our body, of our speech, and of our minds. Asceticism basically supports us in not getting carried away by the extremes of what the Dalai Lama calls the three pathological emotions. The pathology of attachment, greed, I have got to have it. The pathology of revulsion, hatred, I have got to get rid of it. Both of which are grounded in the pathology of delusion about the true nature of reality. So in his very first sermon, the Buddha mentions the extremes of asceticism, many of them familiar to us because of the practices that the Buddha himself as a young prince had undertaken in his initial quest for freedom from suffering. He nearly starved himself to death. He lived outside without shelter. He didn't bathe. He held his breath so long that he got a terrible headache and he engaged in long hours of meditative trance. And yet it was through such severe practices that Siddhartha came to realize what he called the middle way, 
a path between extremes of asceticism on one hand and indulgence in sensory pleasure on the other, such as the childhood that he had spent in the palace. So because of that insight, what's called his darshana, the Buddha declared in his first sermon that the middle way, avoiding the extremes, is the most beneficial path for the development of a truly mature human being, a being who is awakened moment after moment by this very life, a life that is filled with mysteries, with wonder, and of service to others. And yet asceticism, as represented by Mahavajapa, has remained an important part of the Buddhist training program, as it does here at Zen Center. But the question is, to what degree and to what end? You know, it's always a good question for us. And it's been a question throughout the history of not only Buddhism, but I would say of all other religious traditions as well. How far do we humans need to go? And more importantly, perhaps go where? Ditsang asked Fayan, where are you going? Fayan said, around on pilgrimage. Ditsang said, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? Fayan said, I don't know. Ditsang said, not knowing is nearest. So for those who go too far, there's Ananda standing on the other side of the Buddha. Ananda was the Buddha's cousin and lifelong attendant, whose name means joy or bliss, and who's characterized in the earliest teachings as kind, unselfish, and thoughtful towards others, and also as very popular. Ananda enjoyed playing with children and spending time with women. He was also portrayed as a large-bodied person, unlike Mahakashapa, who was as thin as a rail. Ananda, for the most part, was a happy man. He, too, is a perfect model for a spiritually satisfying life, and the second pure precept as well, doing all good. Ananda also became famous for beseeching the Buddha to allow women, such as his aunt, his mother, and his sisters, to enter and train in the Sangha as fully ordained nuns, albeit with a few extra regulations to contend with, and which they still contend with to this very day. Following the Buddha's death, Ananda was severely criticized by his new teacher, Mahakashapa, not only for speaking on behalf of women, but for a great number of other things relating to play. So for me, these two, Mahakashapa representing asceticism and Ananda representing pleasure, are simply the guardrails on the path to awakening. You know, each one personifies the extremes by which we navigate the middle way. First, we slide too far to one side, and then we slide too far back the other way, and so it goes. So this reminds us, once again, that our practice is not a thing, it's a process. You know, it's a living process, a 10,000-mile-long iron road, down which we sometimes move merrily along and sometimes not, as the case may be. In the Zen tradition, Mahagashapa's transmission as Dharma's successor to the Buddha is said to have occurred when the Buddha held up a white flower and twirled it in his hand. The other disciples looked on without knowing how to react, but Mahakashapa smiled faintly, and that was it. Zen, Dharma flower turns the Dharma flower. 
I've always thought it was interesting that the Buddha, according to Zen, would pick Mahagashapa as the first ancestor and Ananda as the second. And then as I thought about it, it, it occurred to me that really it is important. It's an important sequence for each of us to follow and to understand why that's so. So in my view, uh, the first thing that we do as practitioners is to commit to a period of ascetic discipline, you know, the first pure precept, avoiding evil, unwholesome actions, in order to remove the habit body so deeply ingrained in us through a realization of selflessness, you know, vipassana. And then the second pure precept, doing good, becoming free from selfishness, and then seeing the beauty and the joy that runs through all things, and therein a natural wish to show that same beauty and joy to others, a wish to benefit them and the entire world. So then there's the third pure precept by which we transform the body and the mind to whatever is needed for the welfare of all beings. This Kuan Yin, Kanon, with her thousands of hands and arms. Unfortunately, our usual habit as humans is to try and capture that joy that runs through all things. We try to grasp it and possess it and thereby we lose touch with its transient nature, lose touch with the transiency of seasons, of hours, and of moments, without which there would be only absolute silence. As you all have heard many times, the cause of human suffering is this futile effort of the illusory self to capture illusory things, and that the pursuit of the transient by the transient is the very core of human suffering. You know, it's basically a kind of madness. And so we must practice together in order to reveal in fine detail the depth and the breadth of our insanity. And then we must stop. Suzuki Roshi once said that practicing together is like putting unpolished stones into a tumbler. And as they knock around, hitting each other, their rough edges get knocked off. This is a very courageous thing to do, you know, very courageous service that we offer to one another as we must. And this is because none of us here at the Zen Center or anywhere else for that matter is lacking the emotional and psychological conditioning for becoming excessively angry, lustful, or confused. And as my therapist often said to me when as a Zen student, I would complain of some kind of personal upset, human first, so for this reason, human first, I do believe that all of us have come to this practice in order to face the facts of our ancient conditioning, which leads us to enact our pathological emotions. We have come to consider how we might alter the outcome of our habitual response towards self-defense, self-righteousness, and worst of all, self-loathing. So this is the third pure precept, to purify the mind meaning as one of my teachers once said, to save all the beings that you are. The precepts are a way of learning the truth about ourself and about our relationship to the world and to other people, which is basically and ultimately that there is no self and there are no other people. Just as the Buddha saw on the morning of his awakening, he saw a world that was not separate or outside of himself, and he knew for the first time that he wasn't alone, that there was no thing and no one outside of himself, no alone, only all one. 
And he was happy. He was so happy, he almost stayed right there under the tree. But lucky for us, he changed his mind, and so can we. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and free from suffering. And may they live in peace. Thank you very much. Would you like to uh, take a couple questions? Sure. Happy to. Okay. So if anyone has uh, questions, go ahead and put them in chat. There was an earlier question about uh, the poem and the poet you, you read earlier, Fu. Yeah, Billy Collins. He's wonderful. It's a wonderful book. A, a friend gave it to me as a gift. I, I think you can read it without the words being backwards. It's called The Poetry of Impermanence, Mindfulness, and Joy by John Brem. And John Brem is a practitioner who was listening to a lot of Dharma talks. And he said, you teachers need some more poems. <laughs> so he put this wonderful collection of uh, Chinese and Japanese and American poets together under these headings. The first section is impermanence. The second section are poems about mindfulness and the third about joy. And I don't know if you can see the picture, but there's a wonderful image of an elephant standing on top of some chinaware, some teacups. An improbable, but there it is. And I think there was another question. Uh, what are the two truths? Well, there's the ultimate truth, which basically is inconceivable, the inconceivable nature of reality itself. It can't be broken into parts. You know, reality doesn't come apart. It's just all at once right here. And we are all that. Just this is it is a declaration of the ultimate truth. And the relative truth is the other truth, which is the truth about our relationships. And it's pretty much about language, how we have, we as clever little primates have created language to take the world apart, you know, into many, many parts. In fact, I was reading this book, um, Sapiens, which is quite fascinating about the origins of language and how with language, humans were able to begin to say things that were simply not true. Like, that that God up in heaven loves our people better than any others. You know, it's like, where'd that come from? But, you know, we all know these things have been said. So uh, language allows us to lie and <laughs> all kinds of terrible things. So being conscious of language, the relative truth. And there's a wonderful series of books by some scholars led by Jay Garfield from back East, Tibetan teacher, uh, called Taking the Relative Seriously. I think all of us who come into spiritual practice are often drawn to the ultimate. We want the ultimate truth. We want to, you know, have that big bang experience of enlightenment, you know, once and for all. Um, however, the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. Everything shows up for us as in relative terms, you know. Uh, these truths are about the, this one reality. It's not about, you know, two separate realities. So it's really the truth about the one thing you know, about each object. And uh, it's a fascinating study. I highly recommend all of you. You can even just Wikipedia has a really good description of the two truths if you want to uh, uh, read a little bit about it. Hey, thank you. And uh, what was the name of the book again that you showed oh, with the elephant? 
yeah, the poetry of the poetry of impermanence, mindfulness, and joy. John Brehm, B-R-E-H-M. And we'll take one question from YouTube. There was a question about, please explain, think of no thoughts. Is it a koan? Uh-huh, <laughs> definitely. That's the question, you know. Dogen says, he's quoting some other teacher previously, think, not thinking. So this is the dualistic proposition. The relative truth comes in twos. You know, is, isn't, me, you, right, wrong. That's dual, dualistic thinking based in language. So we think in, in twos, um, but there's no twos. You can't find the twos. So think, not thinking. How do you think not thinking? Non-thinking together. This is the essential art of zazen, not splitting the word, world into half, into twos. The big one being self and other. You know, that's the one that hurts us the most. Think not thinking. How do you think not thinking? Non-thinking. The essential art of life, really, of, of zazen. We say zazen, but that just means everything. Okay, Fool, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you so much. And please have a, a good day, a safe day, and uh, take care. <laughs>